we also see that just general levels of explicit and implicit bias against other groups has just rapidly decreased over the past 30 or 40 years, whereas for weight, it actually is going up still. So, you know, we're up against a pretty big battle. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soulsmith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I'm chatting with Jeff Hunger, who is an assistant professor of social psychology at Miami University in Ohio and my very favorite weight stigma researcher, if you're allowed to have favorite weight stigma researchers, and I say that you are. Jeff is someone I got to know several years ago when I was reporting on weight stigma, anti-fat bias, etc. And over the years, we've evolved into internet buddies with a shared passion for hidden kitchens, which you will hear us discuss if you stick all the way through to the butter. But the main focus of this episode is Jeff's work on anti-fat bias, understanding how we internalize it, the difference between implicit and explicit bias, and understanding how we start to separate out concepts like body image struggles from the larger conversation of anti-fat bias. We cover a lot of important grounds. It's a really fun conversation. So here's Jeff, but first a quick break. Okay, it's time to read another of your reviews. This note comes from Sharon, and Sharon writes, I want you and other potential listeners to know that this podcast has made a significant positive difference in my life. I love the topics you raise, particularly regarding fat phobia and diet culture. I am a parent, but my kids are grown now. So while I appreciate and enjoy the content, it's less directly part of my day to day. However, I've struggled since pre-adolescence with body acceptance. Everyone's got a story, and mine's benign compared to so many, but you have offered such a grounding, comforting blend of wisdom, perspective, science, and kindness. I also love your podcast voice. It may not be your day-to-day voice, but it is wonderfully soothing, and I admit I sometimes use it to lull me to sleep, but then I go back and listen to the episode when awake. With gratitude, a music professor who appreciates what you do and hopes others can find you as well. Thank you, Sharon, the music professor. I am so glad to help people fall asleep. (laughs) No, really, that is a real compliment. I'm very self-conscious about my podcast voice, so I appreciate it. If you want to be like Sharon and support the show, you too can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also become a paid Burnt Toast subscriber by clicking the link in your episode description or heading to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. So I'm Jeff Hunger. I'm a social psychology professor at Miami University. That's the one in Ohio, not the one in Florida. Fewer palm trees. Right. So no slipping out to South Beach after our chat, unfortunately. (laughs) I'm also a husband, a cat dad. And if you follow me on Instagram, an annoying foodie is probably the easiest way to classify me. Um, (laughs) I I would consider you a delightful foodie, not an annoying foodie. I I mean, I have a lot of foodie envy when I see your content. I think that just means that you might be in the in-group with me. I mean, I'm not in the in-group because I have to feed small children and I don't get to be in the in-group anymore, but I dream of coming back someday. (laughs) (laughs) One of these days, we'll just have to have you out to Ohio. We can do like a foodie weekend. Yes, please. I'm coming. That sounds great. Maybe more relevant to the folks listening. You know, I'm, I'm a stigma researcher. So a lot of my research looks at how weight stigma in particular shapes our mental and physical health. And, you know, recently we've been focusing a lot on how this plays out with respect to disordered eating and body image. Yeah. So we started talking about doing this episode when I sent you a question I got from a reader, which I'm going to read, and then we can discuss because it kind of gets into all these big questions about bias that you work on. 
So this person wrote, Hi, Virginia, what does the research and or other sources say about how to truly rid ourselves of anti-fat bias, both internal and external? Obviously, self-awareness is key, but I'm curious if you have come across what works. I see it in my own mind constantly and try to bring awareness to it, but it seems fairly intractable in spite of now several years of educating myself. It comes out in how I view myself, my bigger-bodied child, and is tied up in shame and judgment. Who is doing therapeutic, somatic, intellectual, meditation, etc. work to really uproot this type of bias? I know there are studies on mindfulness and implicit bias. Are there any studies showing the kind of therapy or other modality that works? So basically, how do we fix our bias? I think this is something, it's kind of a brick wall we all come up against at some point. This is a fantastic question, and I do think that it is one that needs a lot more research attention. But there is a recent review of this work that is really interesting because it basically found that a lot of intervention approaches that have been tried just don't seem to reliably work. And these are approaches that we took from other forms of bias reduction. You know, there's a larger literature on how we reduce explicit and implicit bias that's kind of only recently, you know, past 10 or 15 years being done as it relates to weight. Mm -hmm. But so, you know, this is things like trying to reduce the belief that weight is controllable, you know, having folks get exposed to fat targets who are kind of counter-stereotypical, and trying to invoke things like empathy or perspective taking. All of these have been tested, and it turns out none of them seem to really be effective. So wait, they're effective for other kinds of bias, like racism or sexism, but not for anti-fat bias. Yeah. From my read of the bias reduction literature, yeah, they seem to be more effective with other groups, but tested in the weight domain, they don't really seem to hold up. So what's going on? That's so weird. Is it weird? So I do think it's weird a little bit. But what I think is really interesting was that the review also found that the interventions that were effective were better able to reduce self-directed bias or internalized bias, as opposed Mm. to, you know, the bias that we direct towards other people. So unlike other categories, you know, weight is one in which there's a really, really strong sort of internalization piece and one that I think is a little bit more intractable because the boundaries between these groups, between, you know, being fat or being not, is kind of permeable. It's a lot more permeable than Mm -hmm. other groups. Like, you know, when we think about race or sexual orientation, there's far less movement between them. So, you know, what this review found that did work, you know, was interventions like adopting a health at every size perspective. This seemed Mm -hmm. to be an effective tool, at least for reducing that internalized weight bias as was research that uses acceptance and commitment therapy. So there are a few approaches that we seem to see from this literature, at least from this recent review, that help us at least tackle, you know, internalized stigma or sort of self-directed stigma. I think where we need to go then is knowing that we have a little bit of sort of a success story. If we can kind of build on that to see if there are ways to modify those approaches to not just kind of reduce the self-directed stigma, but also the the anti-fat bias that we're directing towards other people. This is making me realize we should also define a couple of terms for folks who are less familiar with this conversation. I'll put on my social psychology professor hat. (laughs) Um, So so when we think about internal versus external, you know, we can direct weight stigma towards someone else. You know, you know, we can direct anti-fat bias toward a person in our, our social world, you know, a partner, a child, a stranger. At the same time, we can direct that same sort of anti-fatness 
towards ourselves. We can turn it inward Mm -hmm. and, you know, start to devalue ourselves and stereotype ourselves because of our weight. You know, implicit bias is bias that isn't as easily reportable. You know, we can't just walk up to you and go, you know, Virginia, what's your level of implicit anti-fat bias? You know, it's assessed in more indirect ways because it's below conscious level. And that's kind of in contrast to explicit bias, which is where I can just walk up to you and say, okay, Virginia, how do you think about fat people? Or what do you think about fat people? I can readily report on form of bias that, you know, both are important, but I think more recently, implicit bias has kind of gotten a lot of, I would say, media attention and attention in other spaces. And it's interesting because my first thought is, oh, there must be a very bright line between these two types of bias. But the more I'm thinking about it, I'm wondering, can someone experience something as implicit bias, but other people experience it as explicit bias? Does that make sense? Now, this is another interesting and thorny question. My bias might be at the implicit level. And so it could lead me to behave in a way that you pick up as explicit, you know, that you end up feeling discriminated against because of, you know, your race, your gender, your weight, when I didn't really notice that I was doing anything wrong because, you know, my right. Im- my implicit bias was leaking out. So it, you know, may not look the same as shouting a derogatory term at someone, but it might be the ways in which I position my body, the sort of subtle nonverbal behaviors that I engage in as we interact with one another, you know, things mm-hmm. that can shape the outcomes and the experience of the other person, even if I don't notice them. It just speaks to the level of awareness we need to start to unlearn these biases, right? Because you can be executing them in ways you are not aware of because of your bias sort of blocking you from noticing it, I guess. And I think as the reader that contributed this question sort of noted, you know, a lot of it is thinking about self-reflection and trying to be Mm self-aware. But at the same time, you know, we need to, when we think about anti-fat bias, we also need to be thinking about how bigger, broader structural forces are shaping our anti-fat bias, you know, both internal and external. Because if all we do is emphasize and try to make gains at like the individual level, I imagine that those are going to be hard to sustain against sort of the continued backdrop of, you know, anti-fat fuckery in our society. Excuse my language. No, you never have to excuse your language here. And absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of making a personal project out of something that is this much larger societal question that we have to grapple with. Do you think that when we look at how the research shows what we know works for other forms of bias doesn't work as well for anti-fat bias, do you think that has something to do with the ways the larger system doesn't support that personal work? I think that that very well could be why we are not seeing these maybe tried and true or at least more well-established bias reduction tools work when it comes to weight. We also see that just general levels of explicit and implicit bias against other groups has just rapidly decreased over the past 30 or 40 years, whereas for weight, it actually is going up still. So, you know, we're up against a pretty big battle, sort of an uphill fight to reduce this because not only is, you know, it a little bit resistant to these techniques that we um, have tried before, in general, across the country, at least in the U.S., that bias seems to keep creeping up when things, you know, like bias against gay individuals has gone down over the past 20 years. Right, right, right. 
It just shows how much it's being reinforced in healthcare, in schools, in these different places that have made some progress, not enough progress, but some progress on other forms of bias that here we really are still, you know, on the starting block, so to speak. Absolutely. And there's this really interesting study that I reviewed and and read recently that basically found that things like large-scale fat-shaming events against celebrities can actually push around implicit bias sort of at a a grand scale. Oh, that's fascinating. They basically had all of these very sort of large-scale public fat-shaming events, you know, whether it was all of the many times that Lizzo has been, you know, the target of this or a lot of other celebrities. It was basically like celebrity fat-shaming. And they see Mm -hmm. that it does, it's it's a small effect. You know, we're not going to see this jump up, you know, a ton every time. But if we think about cumulative exposure, think about how many times we see a fat celebrity get, you know, talked terribly about online or, you know, Mm -hmm. in the news. And so even if each one of those events only has a tiny, tiny little bit of an impact on our implicit bias, over time, it's just going to build. And so we're, we're dealing against shit like that as well, having to push back against things like seeing anti-fat bias sort of continually reemerge. And I always think when that happens, you know, when I see progressives fat shaming Donald Trump, like, Donald Trump does not care. He is not going to see your tweet. And there's so many other reasons to eviscerate Donald Trump. You don't need to talk about his body at all. And yet your fat friend just saw your tweet and you equated them to this, you know, person who is, I would describe as a monster in most ways, you know? I was going to use the same term. So The same word. (laughs) (laughs) It's not the gotcha kind of take that I think a lot of otherwise progressive or, you know, liberal folks on Twitter would think it is. It's one, it's, you know, usually incredibly lazy and unfunny. And two, like you say, Donald Trump doesn't give a shit about what you tweet about him. But fat people in your sphere online do. They see it and they take note. So to get a little more into the internal versus external piece of it all, one thought I had in reading this person's question is that they seem to be equating anti-fat bias with body image struggles, with shame about their own body, shame about their child's body. And this made me wonder if these two concepts are always intertwined or if we can and maybe should separate them. So can you be fat phobic but not struggle with your own relationship to body? And on the flip side, can you be struggling, you know, maybe even have an eating disorder, et cetera, and not be fat phobic? So I personally think that these ideas need to be separated. I do think that, you know, issues with body image and anti-fatness can and do operate independently from one another. So, you know, of course, anti-fat bias, living in a structurally anti-fat society, you know, is going to contribute to poor body image. But they, to me, are not, you know, simply one and the same. So, you know, like you said, I think someone can be incredibly fat phobic and perfectly content with their own body. And on Mm -hmm. the flip side, I do think that folks can struggle with body image and not be inherently fat phobic. I think that in particular is really helpful to hear because I often hear from people having that added layer of guilt on top of their own struggle. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel bad about my body and I feel bad I'm perpetuating this thing. And how do I separate those? And I think that's 
a really important sort of insight for folks to make that they can both feel bad about their own body and worry that feeling bad about their own body is going to contribute to sort of perpetuating fat phobia. You know, I think that acknowledging how one's body image struggles may inadvertently be contributing to this sort of anti-fat system is different than what I've seen, which is occasionally folks using their body image struggles as a justification for their Mm anti-fatness. I think that's a different animal altogether. I think recognizing how your own body struggles and how your own sort of feelings about your weight might reflect, you know, bigger, broader anti-fatness is an important one to have. It's not an excuse for you to be shitty to fat people. And so how does Taylor Swift fit into all of this? I am going to out myself as not a Swifty. Uh, you know, I think I just lost. Nor am I. Nor am I. It's just fine. lost my Safe gay card. For the, uh, the non-Swifty. <laughs> just fully revoked. I got to figure out a new way to get it punched for 2023. You've got the food and cat content. You're doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> I guess overlooking the husband too, but. So, uh, you know, I I think that from my very loose sort of understanding, it basically was that she's, you know, it's a thin actress or is it Taylor that actually steps on the scale and it just reads fat on the scales? Yeah, exactly. And it's supposed to be a comment on her eating disorder struggles that she gets on the scale and it says fat. And I think that it probably could be approached in a, a way that still communicates that she is, you know, not liking her body without having mm-hmm. to say she doesn't like it because it is a you know, fat body specifically, like she can express struggles with, you know, disordered eating and with her eating disorder that she has disclosed previously. But I think doing it in a manner that doesn't necessarily equate feeling bad about your body with being fat. I mean, I will probably get annihilated on Twitter for all of that because I think there was a heated debate about this. There was a very heated debate. Taylor Swift fans came out fast and furious in support of her, and it got very complicated. But, you know, I think it was a useful moment because it's like, and I I say this as someone who, like, really can't name a Taylor Swift song, so (laughs) they can come at me too if they want. We're both canceled. We're both canceled. But I just kept thinking, like, if this was someone who I loved and admired in the way that the Taylor Swift fans love and admire Taylor Swift, like, why can I not also hold them to this standard? Whereas, like, Lizzo used an ableist term in one of her songs, and people noted it, and she immediately took the term out and apologized, and it was very straightforward, and everyone was like, yeah, that was fine, you know? Like, it happened, we're over it, we all learned something. And Taylor did eventually edit the video, but hasn't, as far as I know, made a statement. And I just think there was a lot of, like, white lady energy around it. Like, it shows how uncomfortable we are getting this kind of feedback, having to admit to wrongdoing. And it certainly, I think, spoke to all the implicit bias stuff that you're talking about. I also think that instances like this really show us the darker side of, like, stan culture, like online internet Mm -hmm. fandom, you know, because we should be able to and, and should want to hold each other, including celebrities that we look up to, to account for, you know, what they do, you know, what they say, how they produce certain things, you know, whether that's a music video or a song. And I think that Lizzo's swift and clear response to her use of the ableist term was it was just like a masterclass in how you should be doing this. And it was like, Taylor, did you miss that? Like, it was like last month. 
Yeah. <laughs> she literally like gave you a blueprint for how to navigate this situation. And then didn't Beyonce also have an issue with this and kind of, yeah, stum- kind of stumbled yeah. as well? So I think they could have, you th- you'd think someone on Taylor's team would have been like, okay, Lizzo did it really well. Beyonce right. <laughs> stumbled a little bit and we saw how the internet reacted. Let's get on top of this. I think it speaks to, though, though, what you were saying about, you know, fat phobia is on the rise. There were so many people sort of pushing this argument of like, oh, you're all just being too sensitive. It wasn't being taken seriously by her fan base as a real form of oppression. It was just sort of like, oh, these are people getting their feelings hurt. She's trying to tell us her truth. Yep, absolutely. And it doesn't have to be an either or. It doesn't have to be she is speaking her truth or, you know, reflecting on her own struggles or mm-hmm. she's, you know, it, it can be that and she could have, you know, gone about it a different way. And I think that, you know, it seems like an appropriate level of criticism was leveled at her. But I I need to fully dive into this. No, it's fine. It's I mean, I think it's had its moment and we can all move on from Taylor Swift. But it does set me up well for the next topic I wanted us to get into, which is who gets to call themselves fat. And I mean, I think the Taylor situation is kind of a perfect example of when it is problematic for a thin person to call themselves fat. But I'm really curious to hear your thoughts about this. This is a big question. And I, you know, I would agree with you that, you know, a person with thin privilege calling themselves fat is is unacceptable because like you noted, this is almost exclusively done in a demeaning or a condescending manner. So I think we absolutely agree on that. And what I'm curious to get your thoughts on, too, is, but then where along the weight spectrum do we then draw the line to say, okay, that mm-hmm. person can call themselves fat? Like, mm-hmm. obviously, I'm, you, if uh, you know me, I'm not about to be like, let's breathe life into BMI again and give that another <laughs> shitty purpose. <laughs> but you know, where and how and who decides where that cut is made. And I really don't have a good answer to this question. But I think it's an important one because it ties back to sort of the the conversation about body image and weight stigma not necessarily being the same thing and equating them as such being problematic. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. if we flatten those ideas, you know, if we flatten body image struggles and weight stigma, we lose sight of who truly faces the brunt of interpersonal and structural anti-fatness, and that's fat people. Right. And so if we lose sight of that, we are sort of losing sight of, you know, the way in which our sort of social structures are disproportionately impacting and harming higher body weight individuals. And even though folks across the weight spectrum can, you know, feel, quote unquote, feel fat, or however we want to, you know, use that also problematic language, that's not the same as being fat and being the target and the ire of a whole lot of people because of your body size. Right. It reduces the whole conversation just to your personal feelings about your body and minimizes the fact that this is this systemic form of oppression that's showing up in paychecks, in access to public spaces, in access to healthcare, and all of these other arenas. And so maybe this is the time to mention that I think that we as weight stigma researchers are kind of doing a disservice because this has crept into, this type of thinking has crept into the research on internalized weight bias. So we've seen work in this area grow exponentially over the past decade, but it's become Mm -hmm. increasingly common to see research on internalized weight bias being done with predominantly or or exclusively thinner participants. Oh, wow. 
So to me, <laughs> this is an issue because asking a thinner person about their internalized anti-fat bias is a bit about asking me my level of internalized anti-straight bias. I'm right. very gay. It's not my internalized bias. It's just my bias, you know? <laughs> and, and so right. I would love if we as researchers in the weight stigma domain would engage more thoughtfully with this idea, you know, in, supposedly internalized weight bias is associated with some outcome. What does it mean when we're measuring it among people that aren't part of that group? Are we capturing something like internalized societal ideals around thinness? Mm. Which is totally fine. But if we are, let's call a spade a spade. Let's not co-opt this idea of internalized anti-fatness almost exclusively in thinner people. Because it, again, then what it does is it washes out this idea of who's disproportionately impacted. Some people want to flip that on their head and be like, no, look, everyone can be impacted by weight stigma, which is true. Everyone can be impacted by living in a structurally anti-fat society. But again, mm -hmm. it's like you say, the fat people that see it show up in their paychecks, in their doctor's visits, in their insurance premiums, and not yeah. everyone across the weight spectrum gets that same treatment at the hands of, you know, anti-fat bias. It seems like a parallel one could draw here is sexism, I would argue, is really harmful to cis men as well because it narrows the conversation around masculinity and being able to express emotions and da 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 if you've labeled all of that as girly. But it still hurts women more because <laughs> they're the people not getting paid equally. I think that is a really helpful parallel, you know? Folks can... Yeah experience consequences of that structure of the, you know, the sort of heterosexist kind of patriarchal society that we live in. And like you say, men will be hurt by it. They are not hurt in a necessarily systematic way like women are, however. It does sound like you're saying that in terms of the research conversation, the implicit bias, if we're going to call it that, of thin people is maybe getting more research dollars and energy than explicit bias experienced by fat people. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of attention being paid to, you know, internalized self-directed weight stigma that is not centering the experiences of fat people. That's maddening. That's very maddening. Yeah. There's like a commentary that's been brewing in the back of my brain for about five years that I'm hoping to put pen to paper about this topic. If I end up writing it, I'll send it to you. Thank you. I really want you to, because this feels like such an important shift in the conversation. It's something I struggle with even just as a journalist covering these topics. Most of the questions I get are about people's personal relationships with their bodies. I think about it in the balance of the newsletter content, but it's hard when this is how people enter this issue in this very personal way. I think it's so crucial to say, no, no, this is part of this larger systemic thing. You have to recognize the larger system I think it's actually crucial to working on the personal piece of it, right, to understand that your struggle fits into this larger puzzle. But it's also like, how do we get the conversation past the personal struggle piece and onto the systemic piece? And how do we focus on making that kind of systemic change? Those are really important questions. And maybe it's something like we saw in that literature review that I mentioned earlier that, you know, folks who are engaging in like acceptance and commitment therapy seem to reduce their levels of internalized or self-directed stigma. So maybe that's step one. Maybe step one is mm -hmm. fixing things at home, you know, and then 
taking that newfound freedom and that newfound energy and trying to figure out strategies to also reduce the ways in which your bias towards other people might be manifesting. You know, once you've reduced the sort of anti-fatness that you're directing towards the self, maybe that's going to free up people with the resources and the energy and the ability to also make sure that they're, they're not turning around and being assholes to fat people in their social world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we really have to hold all of ourselves accountable to like not stopping at step one, right? Mm -hmm. Like not being white feminists about it. <laughs> we have to keep doing it. And that's, I think, the tricky piece, especially as it sounds like we don't have as much clear direction from the research yet about what step two looks like. Absolutely. And I think that's why if there's any budding social psychologists or bias researchers out there, you know, this is a big area of, of needed attention. So like run with it. It's so vital. One last thing I wanted to talk about, and maybe this gets us starting to think along these step two lines, is a lot of the burnt toast audience's parents and a main way that we see anti-fat bias present itself most acutely is when a kid comes home and reports that someone called them fat or, you know, has otherwise teased or bullied them for their weight. So then this is maybe a little less about unlearning our own biases, although I think they still come into play here, and more about helping kids cope with the reality of this bias in the world. And I'm just wondering if you have thoughts on strategies here, if there's anything promising in the research on weight-based bullying about what works there. So in the weight stigma domain, I haven't seen a ton of work that has directly addressed this, you know, what is an otherwise really important question. Like, how are we to help our kids, our close others cope when they come home and say, okay, I've been the victim of weight-based bullying, weight-based teasing, what have you. I do wonder if this is a place for having a conversation with kids ahead of time about bias. An analog might be when minoritized parents talk to their kids about the potential for discrimination. Right. So maybe we can work to have developmentally appropriate conversations about how some bodies are unfairly treated, how others are unnecessarily glorified. And, you know, maybe this is going to help kids be better equipped to face the bullying if it happens, or maybe help them stop from at least internalizing their own mistreatment. You know, we can't always, unfortunately, stop the experiences that they're going to, you know, encounter at school. But if we can stop them from sort of internalizing and turning that negativity to themselves, maybe we can at least right. sort of buffer a little bit. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And parents of thin kids have the work to do to educate our kids about this issue as well, right? And about their privilege and not being part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a place for everyone in this conversation. And I did want to also mention that I know that Mary Himmelstein at Kent State does have some research showing that kids who are bullied or teased because of their weight would just love more support from their parents. And they also, yeah. they've also indicated that they want to see stronger policies in schools to prevent being bullied in the first place. Yeah, that would be great. So, you know, is weight explicitly named in the anti-bullying policies in your school or your school district? If not, work to change that. You know, if the policy does include weight, is it being enforced? Are teachers and staff being trained to identify and intervene on this type of bullying? So there's ways to be an ally like this that can hopefully even start to cut off those experiences, you know, before they manifest or before they happen. And what I like about that is, again, because it's at a bigger policy level, 
it's going to, yes, support your own kid, but it's also going to help other fat kids and other kids in the school as well. Okay, so we wrap up every episode of the podcast with a segment I call Better for Your Burnt Toast, where we give our recommendations. Jeff, you are welcome to recommend something else, but we have to talk about hidden kitchens. So I didn't know if you had something else you wanted to suggest first, or should we just dive into that? I guess my only recommendation would be, you know, just stop commenting on people's weight. You know, whether it's the weight of your friends, the weight of your family, celebrities like Lizzo, assholes like Donald Trump, yourself, just stop it. You know, you're going to be better off for it. The folks around you are going to be better off for it. That's amazing. And also build in hidden rooms in your kitchens because they're so cool. They're so cool. Oh, my gosh. So for people who are like, what are they talking about? Yeah, we um, sound crazy right now. We sound a little crazy. (laughs) Can you explain? Because I think... I feel like you DM'd me about it first. I don't know. I don't know how we discovered this mutual love for them, but why don't you explain what we're talking about? Yeah, so it's this big Instagram trend where, you know, you're in this gorgeous kitchen, then, uh, you know, all of a sudden a pantry pulls open and there's this gorgeous second room, like a butler's pantry or a hidden coffee nook or, you know, a, a, a full second kitchen. It's just like ridiculous shit that, that people it's are so hiding, ridiculous. that people are hiding behind a single door. I think I DM'd like, I you because like, I think I told you yeah, to have Dan build one. Yes, you did. That's right. I think it was a very specific request for you, <laughs> like on your behalf, to have Dan build you a hidden room. And he still has not, I have to report. I feel like it got inspired by the appliance garage concept where, like, God forbid anyone sees your toaster, they make, like, a slide-down cover for it, you know, that, like, section of your kitchen counter. And then people were like, if we're hiding the appliances, what if we also hide? And, like, it's just gotten bigger and bigger <laughs> and more absurd. And I'm so here for it. It's so entertaining. I also, as a feminist, have, like, many qualms about it and, like, how it is, like, requiring us to perform domesticity and hide the mess and all of this. But also, I want one. I'm, like, conflicted and I love it. Yeah, I can totally see the problematic nature of it. To me, it's, like, from when I was a kid, I always wanted secret passageways because I was, like, a nerd like that. And so, to me, it's, like, I want a hidden library or, you know, a hidden something behind a book or I just want something cool like that. And these are really, yeah. they're really hitting that like 11-year-old Jeff fantasy that's now kind of blended with the fact that I'm 35 and an annoying foodie. So it had to manifest this way. <laughs> yeah, I think that's totally what it is. I, as a kid, when I was nine, we moved into a house that was built in 1832. And like for a year, I was hunting for secret passageways. I never found one. I was like so determined that there would be one. It was not a large house. It was not a fancy house. It was like a small New England farmhouse. They don't have secret passageways. <laughs> but I was just like, there will be one. So yes, I think it totally taps into that. I think that's why my very favorite example of this trend is not a kitchen thing at all, but it's Elsie Larson of A Beautiful Mess. She made, it's like you're in her upstairs hallway and you push on the wall, and then it goes into that little hidden library. Did I send you that one? Oh, no, but I really need you to. I will. I will. It's like this tiny little, it's like a nook. I don't. I can't figure out where in her house it is, but it's just like a little hidden library for her kids. And it's like, oh, my gosh, it's the most adorable thing. Like slightly related, but like we have a friend who works at uh, a social media company, we'll say. And they have like a, a name tag, you know, that they just tap on this random part of the wall and a door shows up. And you can't, like, you really can't see the door. It's mind boggling. Oh and then it's a hidden bar. <gasps> wow. 
okay, they're living the dream. Yeah, I mean, if they like their job, they're, that part of their job is living the dream. I was living my That's... dream for a day because I just got to wander around this place and do all of the fun <laughs> things at the social media company without the work, you know? Right, right, I'm right, like, right. I will yeah, be in the, totally. the game room. I will be in the hidden bar. It's actually really hard to like look at your house and figure out where, I mean, like I have started to obsess over this, but it basically means you have to wall something off in a way that unless your house is absolutely enormous would create other prop like so do we think that the influencers with the hidden kitchens just have like huge like mega mansions is that what we're seeing i have to like, assume how do you have space so. for it because the, yes. the kitchens the, the the front kitchen or whatever we call the first kitchen <laughs> is the public kitchen yeah, the, the public <laughs> kitchen is also usually huge it's not it's usually huge yeah, yeah. it's like, it's the like got a giant island in it yeah right right yeah. and then you push through and you get to this whole other space it's so fascinating. My dream is that our next house uh, has an unfinished basement so that I can make this a reality. Because if, if you have an unfinished mm. basement, then it's a lot easier to hide something. You know, I'm just going to tuck yep. away a kid's library or playroom somewhere. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's, mm-hmm. if my husband's mm-hmm. listening to this, that's, he knows that's a, on my long-term list of house that's goals. Something we're working towards. Yeah. I think the way, and now I'm remembering the way Elsie did it was they had, they bought their houses. Like, I mean, she's an influencer. She has a big, beautiful house. And I think it had like one of those like double height foyers when you walk in. You know how like a lot of McMansions have like the double height foyer? And she closed it off and made it just, so she made a second. I've seen a couple influencers do this. If you have a McMansion with a double height foyer and you put a floor halfway up it, you can make yourself a hidden room of some sort. So that's just a little life hack for everyone with a McMansion who's just, listening to Just this. a very casual reno tip. Add a <laughs> just floor. Just like, hey, add an you could just add a floor. floor just then you can also build in a hidden room. Yeah, I think we yeah. should disavow anyone out there that thinks a professor would be able to do that on a professor's salary. It's nice to dream. So, yes, people can follow us for more inspirational life hacks like that. I was going to say, yeah, maybe our next podcast should just be one where we give those like really down-to-earth life hacks like that together. Yeah, just like really useful practical advice mm-hmm. for people about expensive home renovation projects. I am very good at spending other people's money on their home renovations. Oh, yeah. Definitely a superpower <laughs> of mine. <laughs> well, Jeff, thank you. This was so much fun. Tell people where they can follow you for your food, cat, and hidden kitchen content and also your work. (laughs) Well, thank you, first off, for having me. This was fantastic. I always love chatting with you. Same. So for research-related content, you can find me at jeffreyhunger.com. All of my research is going to be up there. Typically the most up-to-date place to find any of the the published work that we've been doing. Otherwise, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at drhunger or Dr. Hunger on both platforms. But as Virginia just mentioned, that's going to be a mixture of research, food posts, and my cats. So if you're into that sort of thing, by all means, please find me there. I mean, it's pretty great. So I recommend it. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free on your podcast player and tell a friend about the episode. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore Soulsmith. Oh, and TikTok too. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lett. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.